I think in the broader agritourism conversation, it's often this experience of connecting people to farms, this connecting people to land who otherwise wouldn't experience the land, who wouldn't experience farm, who wouldn't eat the food directly out of the ground. You know, that is kind of at the heart of what agritourism provides is this connection and education and community. And of course, it helps the farmers and it supplements income. Hello and welcome to Warmly, Iowa. I'm Sarah Davis, your host. I'm originally from Iowa, but like many others, I left to pursue career and adventure elsewhere. Then, a couple of years ago, after two decades living in big cities on both coasts, I returned. I didn't want to just return, though. I wanted to come home, and that's what I'm doing here. I like to think of this podcast as my love letter to Iowa, my home state, and to rediscovering community. This season, it starts with one simple question, and that was one that I would be asked time and time again— Dear Iowa, why does everyone think I grew up on a farm? Warmly, Sarah. When I first moved back to Iowa, I was about a third of the way through The Artist's Way. If you're not familiar with The Artist's Way, it's a famous book by Julia Cameron that encourages artists to rediscover their art. For her, it was part of her recovery program, and there are times when it feels like recovery. There's a loose structure every week with suggested guidance, and the core parts of the program are morning pages, which are daily journal type of things, and artist dates, a date for your inner artist, essentially. Being new again to Iowa, I realized I never really spent concentrated time in the country. And I also had an idea of where I wanted to go with this podcast, but it was just a seedling back then. I had a goal to have an extended artist date. So after a bit of searching and a side mission to go to Iowa City, I found Anna Geyer's farm. And though I didn't realize it at the time, her farm was one of the first, if not the first, to hold massively popular pizza nights for the community. It was not until I was sort of deep into pizza that I went, oh my goodness, I'm running business here. At the end of the pizza era, I was up to 25 employees and two managers. When I first arrived at her farm, though, it was for a retreat she had created for entrepreneurs called The Abundance of Enough. So we spent a lot of time in this conversation just talking about entrepreneurship and what it means to be an agritourism entrepreneur. It just so happened that I was launching my podcast consulting business, The Connected Podcaster LLC, at the same time. So the timing of her retreat was actually perfect for me to attend. It felt tremendously fitting to kick off the series in this way as Anna's farm very much feels like a re-entry into Iowa for me. Anna farms with her husband, Dave, on a farm west of Iowa City, Iowa. In addition to participating in the general work of the farm, one of Anna's significant contributions over the years has been to create a series of agritourism enterprises, beginning with cut flowers for you pick and weddings, then moving into artisan wood-fired bread, wood-fired pizza events, a folk school, and a retreat center with lodging, camping, and glamping experiences on the farm. Most recently, she has begun working to transition some of their acres to agroforestry, focusing on perennial food, fiber, and natural dyes. Anna also teaches entrepreneurship through the Land Alliance Folk School Entrepreneurship Program. We began with a question that initially grounded me in this series. Did you grow up on a farm? 
I did, yeah. It was wonderful. It was just seven miles away from where I live now. I was the youngest of three children, and my favorite thing to do would be outside working with my dad and my brother. So I tried to avoid housework, <laughs> and I preferred to be doing the farm work. And why do you do this work? As an adult, probably the number one answer is because I love it. There is something about farming that's hard to describe, but being on the land and tending the land and observing the land is like part of you somehow. And it's so beautiful. It gives back so much to you. It is very courageous work and it's hard work, but there's something so wonderful about it. So that's maybe a little vague, but I just love it. That's my number one answer. In addition to that, I think as the concerns about climate become more and more concerning, being able to be a farmer gives me an opportunity to make choices about the way land is used, that it can speak to those problems and hopefully mitigate them in some tiny way. It also becomes a bit of a platform to do that work. And then I think also it's just an incredible place for hospitality. And as you read in all those things I'm doing, hospitality is the root of everything I'm doing. And so having a farm on which to create space for other people is another thing I really love about it. What does that lifestyle mean to you? <laughs> I think it's space and time and simplicity in terms of there's something a little mundane about it. And that mundane work is both beautiful and steadying. This is not something I've ever had to describe, but yeah, there's something mundane and beautiful about it. And a word that I don't know if everybody knows or thinks about, but I certainly have since learning about your farm, is agritourism. Right, right. I'm wondering, how did you even... Going back to your first project, your first vision, how did you even know to do that? And what is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I should say that I'm a very unlikely entrepreneur. That was not my intention. <laughs> I didn't even know that I had those qualities. My intention was to just create space for people and welcome people into community. So when I created the cutting garden, it was just a gathering destination and, you know, something for people to come enjoy beauty, enjoy an activity, meet other people. And that was lovely. And it spoke to a specific group of people. But then when the pizza wood-fired oven arrived and pizza and bread became a possibility, that just spoke to a very much broader audience. But underlying that was the same impulse as creating beautiful space for people to gather and experience community. <laughs> it was not until I was sort of deep into pizza that I went, oh my goodness, I'm running business here. And I'm running actually three businesses. I didn't have a clue quite how to feel about that or really how to wrap my head around that kind of identity. So that was a long journey for me. But in answer to your question about agritourism, for me, it just began as an opportunity to create space and hospitality for people. And in fact, I think in the broader agritourism conversation, it's often this experience of connecting people to farms, this connecting people to land who otherwise wouldn't experience the land, who wouldn't experience farm, who wouldn't eat the food directly out of the ground. You know, that is at the heart of what agritourism provides is this connection and education and community. 
And of course, it helps the farmers and it supplements income. According to Wikipedia, agritourism or agrotourism involves any agriculturally based operation or activity that brings visitors to a farm or ranch. I think just urbanization in general has made us feel disconnected to nature and to farming and to where our food comes from. Yeah. And, you know, in the pizza business, we grew almost all the vegetables that went on our pizzas and the meat. And so when people came and sat down here, they could see where the food had been harvested. They could see the animals. It's a very direct connection. Yeah, you're reminding me a long time ago, one of my first jobs out of college, I had a kind of an indirect connection to a farm, a community place. And we went there for board meetings. I was an executive assistant, so I was kind of in charge of the board meetings. And every time we would go, it would just be so amazing and so refreshing to get away from the city, the D.C. area. And they would have pigs. <laughs> and they would explain, you know, what would happen with the pigs. And I was just like, here we are, board members dressed up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wasn't the board member, but we're sitting here looking at these pigs and these are going to become down the line a meal. So it was, yeah. it was very humbling. And also it was very grounding. Yeah, I can imagine that that's an eye opener in some ways. One thing that I think non-farmers really have a hard time understanding is how a farmer can truly love their animals, which we do. These animals matter to us. We care for them. And they become our food. And there's sort of a, in some ways, this mental puzzle that's also hard to wrap your head around. But it's very real that farmers genuinely love their animals. Mm. It's a strange experience, yeah. So I met you at The Abundance of Enough. Yeah. And... I guess a lot of entrepreneurship is really just about mindset. And you explained that you were accidentally an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. How did you learn to embrace your entrepreneurship? Oh, my goodness. It was a bit of a wrestle. <laughs> but I think it was a slow light bulb. At one point, it was like, okay, I grew up with a dad who was very pragmatic. And so he would explain why ideas weren't going to work. And he was very practical, so I learned common sense. I learned how to think about things practically. I learned how to be a problem solver, all the things. My husband, when I married him and started expressing ideas and creative thoughts, he'd be like, yeah, you could try that. And I was just like, what? I could? So for the first time in my life, I had someone who was giving me space to lean into some of the creative ideas that I had. And so then I went through this series of questions. I was like, well, what if I don't like it and I quit? And he's like, well, then you quit. I was like, well, doesn't that make me a quitter? No, it means you quit. And I said, well, what if it fails? Well, then you try something different. And I said, whoa. <laughs> like, he just didn't, he wasn't afraid of it. And he wasn't mm. worried about it going wrong. And so that was me sort of beginning to embrace these creative ideas and being willing to lean into them. And at that point, I wasn't even thinking about them as business. It was just ideas I wanted to try. And then when I got into them and realized, oh, these are businesses, I think it was another question of like, oh, well, how do I wrap my head around the fact that I am not just creating a hospitable experience for people, but I'm asking to be supported in that. 
That was another mm-hmm. journey. I need to ask to receive something in return so that I can be supported. So that was sort of the second phase of my journey. And then learning to be a leader as my employee crew grew. You know, at the end of the pizza era, I was up to 25 employees and two managers. So that era was an experience of learning and growing in my leadership. I'm the youngest child in a very, very strong-willed set of siblings. And so learning to claim my voice and claim authority and manage this group of people, that was another journey and many other things. But thankfully, the opportunities kept coming and pushing me and pushing me and pushing me into more learning and more growth. Mm -hmm. Something we talked about before with your dad is about celebrating the naysayers. Yeah. And I should just say to honor my dad, there are two things about him that should be noted. One is that his pragmatism was a huge gift to me as a creative person to have someone to teach you how to be practical. I think made me much more likely to be successful because I wasn't just a pie in the sky person or a creative. I had that sort of grounding common sense that he had taught me and those two combined to make things possible in a way that otherwise I think they wouldn't have been. Mm. So the commitment, the discipline, all of that was really helpful. The other thing about Mm -hmm. my dad is that he has come around to be a great fan of the work I do. He was always skeptical, but he learned to really be a fan. And I think as he saw me actually accomplishing the things I imagined, he just articulated surprise and real admiration. So thankful for that. But yeah, I think the naysayers offer us is they offer us this opportunity to see what really could go wrong. Someone says to you, that won't work because, and then you can think it over and you're like, well, I can actually mitigate that before it happens. Or I can build that into my thought process so that I can anticipate that problem if it arises. So in some ways, the naysayers can really make us doubt ourselves or tear us down or make us want to give up before we even try. But I think if we reframe it as an opportunity to plan for those problems, it can really be useful. Yeah, I'm remembering... I used to have this practice of thinking through what are all the things that could go wrong when I was contemplating quitting my full-time job. I was never going to end up homeless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was one of my biggest fears. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Just, you know, but in my mind, I was able to kind of build in, oh, wait, no, I have all of these supports. If McDonald's doesn't work out, if, like, you know, if I was thinking of all the things that I would have to do if I quit my full-time job trajectory. And it was helpful because I realized that I had so much support around me and it wasn't as big of a fear when I started to name it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so fun to hear that you went through that because I think Quitting a full-time job where you have insurance and you have benefits and you have retirement built in is one of the biggest obstacles for people that I talk to. And so for you to be able to say, okay, what am I afraid of and how could this play out? And is it really going to play out in the worst case scenario that I'm imagining? And really walk yourself through that. I mean, that's a remarkable gift to be able to do that. Yeah. And I mean, I feel, I guess I feel really privileged in a way, because I feel like I did have that opportunity to work that full-time job. And it did give me so much. You know, I was saying for five years, I was wanting to do the work that I was doing, but I wasn't doing it. But by saving 
money, I was able to kind of build up that extra support to hold me through when things are a little bit slower. Yes. So it gives me just more freedom, more creative freedom. Yes. Yes. And actually, it's fun that you brought up the word freedom because I think freedom is for entrepreneurs, for business people. But I think for people in general, I think it's a word that we have maybe undervalued or maybe I just don't hear people talk about it enough. I just was writing a blog post type of thing on time versus money. You know, we have this phrase, time is money. And I really want to challenge that. I understand the concept. I understand that we make money within time. I understand why people use it, why it matters, and what's the impulse there. I understand all that. But I really think we need to claim time as freedom. Hmm. Because freedom gives us this opportunity to choose what we're doing in that container of time. So you, Sarah, because you thought through how to save up, how to plan, how to make a space for yourself, then you had the freedom to choose. Then you had a freedom to choose within the container of your time how you will make your money, how you will spend your time, how you will give expression to your creative pursuits. I think freedom is something we need to spend more time with because, okay, because I think so many people are trapped. They're trapped in their work. They're trapped by their debt. They're trapped by their own internal expectations around success, around what accomplishment looks like. So the people are sort of confined in an image that if that could be reframed, could just produce a lot of freedom. Yeah, that time and money relationship. So interesting. I I had a healer friend who I think I was saying something like, I was speaking in that language of time as money. And I said, well, how much time do you want to budget to this? <laughs> and that language just turned her off so much. She was like, what are you talking about budget? Like I had to step back because it was an email exchange. I had to step back and try and see things from her perspective. She's definitely living in a much more ethereal world than I am, but even the language of money, applying that to your life, to your time, it can feel very constraining and very ill-fitting. Yeah. Different people connect with the concept differently. And there's certainly grace for that. I think I just had a conversation with a woman I know who connects with it very differently than me. And she's just a very different person. So, I mean, this is, you know, clearly my opinion, but for me, the concept of freedom is more compelling. And certainly time needs to create space for money to come in. I mean, there's no denying that we need money to support us. So that's certainly an element of our time. But we also want relationships and freedom and creativity and rest. Those all need to be elements too. So, yeah, I can understand why your person was a little puzzled or a little uncertain how to respond to that. Mm -hmm. I was definitely operating in my language and not hers. Right. I want to go back to this concept of entrepreneurship and what I was reading about in your bio, which is entrepreneurship today. Why would you choose to have retreats to teach it on the farm? Oh my goodness. I was just asking myself this question. One of the questions I really put to my the people in my programs at the beginning is know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And it's so easy for me to struggle with the why 
and connect why entrepreneurship is connected to farming or why why am I a farmer and doing this agritourism stuff? Why does teaching entrepreneurship grow out of that? That can get really vague for me. Hmm. And honestly, Sarah, I still struggle with putting an answer to that question. I do have it written down somewhere. And there are two parts of it, if I can remember them. One is, honestly, I love teaching. So part of it is just this part of me that gets expression in teaching entrepreneurship that it doesn't get expression in in farming. So that's one element. Hmm. And the other part, I think, is maybe connected to this idea of freedom, is that I see people across all spectrums of our society really struggling with busyness and exhaustion. And so maybe Hmm. teaching entrepreneurship on a farm in this sort of slower bucolic setting is my way of saying we can choose how we do entrepreneurship. We can choose to think about it differently. We can choose to reframe success, redefine what it means for us. And I think putting that teaching in the context of a farm can sort of help people imagine it differently. So stepping away from the classic entrepreneurship hustle concept, which is this glamorous hustle. We have a glamorous image of entrepreneurship that I think needs to be debunked. (laughs) It's hard work. It's struggle. It doesn't go well all the time. That's just reality. And so if we can step back from sort of the glamorous hustle that we create around entrepreneurship and really just ask questions about what do we want our life to look like? What do we want our relationships to look like? How do we express ourselves in work and then be supported in that? The FAR actually gives this unique setting to help people examine those questions, even though they're not necessarily connected to agriculture. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying earlier, the spaciousness that it provides. Yes. Just being there, even overnight, being able to get away from your daily grind or whatever you're doing and being surrounded by other people who are asking the same questions, even if there's no immediate answer or we all are from different types of businesses, is really helpful. I guess there's a like-mindedness in that everybody who comes to your farm, they're drawn in by you and your energy too. So that abundance of enough, that feeling of craving that is the commonality. Yeah. I think people do often long for a steadier, slower pace. And our culture has really driven us in the other direction. Yeah. But the good news is we get to make choices about that, (laughs) hopefully. Yeah, totally. Well, Anna, how can people find you who might want to look up and learn more about what you do? Well, of course, there's the website, and that's landalliancefolk.com. Land Alliance is also on Instagram and Facebook. I love the sort of Instagram platform, at least I used to. It's a little bit more jolty now, but that's a great place to see the beauty of the farm. And of course, there's always lodging here, so anyone can come for a retreat. I'm so grateful for Anna today taking us down an intro to her work, her views on entrepreneurship and agritourism. Before we recorded, Anna mentioned she gave a talk for Practical Farmers of Iowa. That wasn't really our area of focus for this conversation, but I later looked it up because people I'd spoken to about this topic kept mentioning it. I discovered it is an organization with a mission to equip farmers to build resilient farmers and communities. 
This is an important movement because the landscape of rural communities and farming is changing. Anna touched on this briefly when she mentioned climate changes and bringing people closer to the land. But the shift to urbanization has also impacted rural people and their communities. I'll link to one of her Practical Farmers talks in the show notes. I'd like to take us out on a song. As I mentioned when I first met Anna, it was in context of a retreat. One of the retreat participants, Liz Rogg, leads singing groups in Fairfield as one of her areas of work with the Center for Belonging. So she naturally gravitates toward song. Anna graciously allowed this, and it invited a sense of ritual to the retreat, a safe space for us to feel community. Here's a brief clip from that day. It was our first time singing this, a song called If You Give Birth to What's Inside by Betsy Rose. If you give birth to what's inside you, it will save you, it will save you. If you do not give birth to what's inside you, it will destroy you, it will destroy you. Reach out, reach out your hand, you cannot do it alone. I'm Sarah Davis, and this is the Warmly Iowa podcast. Ted Craig edits and produces this podcast. Please check out any resources mentioned today in the show notes and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Warmly Iowa also has a regular newsletter that features more activities and the people behind them from the Iowa community, as well as bonus content from the podcast. You can find it on Substack. Just search for Warmly Iowa. As my dad liked to sign off on his letters, Take care and own your adventure.